If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today. It is a mess out there. If you're somewhere else in town, if you're in the West End or down below, you don't know. It is a mess out there right now. If you're trying to get somewhere across the mountain, uh, pack some granola bars and some water because it is going to take you a while. It is a bad day for traffic here in Hamilton, Ontario. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson. That's not why. Scott Scott is not lost in the city somewhere. He'll be back in a few days. But um, Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today. So much to get to on the show today. We are uh, We are jammed today is what we are. We are jammed today. Let me tell you what we're going to be talking about. We're going to start out with a little Dolly Parton. Dolly Parton, 50 years ago yesterday, may, now the Beatles may have a claim to this, but Dolly Parton may have had the best day in music history 50 years ago yesterday. We will explain what that's all about. Uh, Steve Strongman, speaking of music, Steve Strongman is going to be joining us. Local blues man, he'll be uh, joining us this hour as well. The story of the day, we're going to be talking this throughout the show today. Besides the traffic here in Hamilton, if you are a a hostage of that traffic, uh, pay attention because you know what's coming up. Uh, David Johnson, the former governor general today, came out and I think I can safely say, despite most expectations, said no public inquiry. Nope, not needed, not happening. I think most people, I don't, you could feel differently about this, but my sense is most people said, uh, what? With all the stuff that we've heard, we're not going to have a public inquiry? What? Really? We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about throughout the show today. A number of different guests will be jumping in on that one. Uh, speaking of traffic, perfect day for this one to come up. The city is talking about changing Main Street into a two-way street, and not just into two ways. Two ways with wider sidewalks and with bike lanes and maybe wider traffic lane. Who knows what might happen? But essentially what is going to happen, and I don't think this is going to shock anyone, is traffic is going to be slowed considerably. That intentionally, that's the point, among other things. Is that going to work? I mean, there, there, Main Street has had its share of bad accidents unquestionably, but in the big picture, is slowing the traffic significantly going to make this city better. We'll talk about that one and we'll be allowed to we give you open the phone line so you can have your say on that one as well. Um I'm a little I'm a little concerned that on a day when so many people are bumper to bumper in a road as a parking lot right now that uh the answers may be slightly skewed, but nonetheless, we will we'll do that uh in a little bit. We're going to be talking about the Toronto Blue Jays who um are right now moving about as well as Hamilton traffic sitting in uncharacter well and unexpectedly last place in the American League East. What is going on? Now, the American League East is the best division in baseball. The Jays would be first or second in almost every other division in baseball, but they're not. They're in the American League East. They are in last place and they are on a long losing streak. Well, five games, but they've been losing a lot of games lately. We'll be chatting with uh, with Mike Wilner about that one later in the show. Lots of other stuff to get to as well. If you are out in your car, get comfortable. You may be there for a while, but keep your dial right here. If you are not, well, 
Be thankful. Get yourself a cool beverage. Think kindly of those poor people who are stuck. I want to bring in Eric Alper. He is a publicist. He's a music commentator. He's kind of done everything in the music industry. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I got a lot done. I feel very accomplished, but certainly not as accomplished as Dolly Parton was on well, the day that she wrote so, that. So, yeah. So, let, let's explain this. So, she wrote 50 years ago yesterday... Whatever it is you people who are listening and Eric and I have done today or yesterday, whatever you accomplish, you opened your pool, you cut the grass, you painted it, whatever. 50 years ago yesterday, Dolly Parton recorded Jolene and, oh, sorry, she wrote, uh, but the same day she wrote Jolene, she also wrote I Will Always Love You that became a huge hit for her and for Whitney Houston. In the same day, she wrote those two songs, which, Eric, I got to think, I, I was looking around to see if there's any other story online of any other musician who has been credited with popping two songs like that, of that l- sort of quality out in the same day. I can't find it. Yeah, they're, the only one that would come remarkably similar would have been Neil Young. Um, there was a week where Neil Young in the early 1970s had a fever above 39 degrees and was hallucinating. And he wrote Cinnamon Girl, Down by the River, and Cowgirl in the Sand. And everybody knows this is nowhere um, on his on his brilliant album. But I think on the same day, no, I don't even think anything comes close to it. And she knew that both of them were really good. Um you know, the, the, there's a lot of stories surrounding the song, and I think the, the best one has to do with the fact that um, for I Will Always Love You, not only did she make it a hit when she yes. first released it, but Elvis Presley wanted to record it. And Dolly knew that if Elvis recorded it, it would be sent to the stratosphere. Um, but at the time, Elvis Presley and his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, when they did a cover of a song, they wanted at least 50% of the publishing, which means that they would be listed as the songwriters mm. on their version of it. And Dolly said no. She was pretty steadfast and said, these songs are going to be what is going to earn a living for my children and grandchildren and my family. Um, And, and she knew that Elvis recording this would make it not just legendary, but sell millions of copies around the world but she said no and she never really regretted that decision and it was a smart one because when Whitney Houston did it um for the bodyguard uh-huh. soundtrack it ended up selling 35 million copies yeah it did okay dolly made a few bucks yeah, off that here's, okay. here's the thing that i find so amazing not just that somebody I, i'm look i i suppose there are people in any line of work who can do two amazing things in the same day i don't you know that that's you know, interesting that it's singing, but, you know, people can, I'm sure painters, there are probably painters who have started two masterpieces in the same day or authors who have written whatever. I'm sure that happens, but music is unique because I don't know how you write one of those songs and concentrate so much on figuring it out and then don't have that tune bouncing around in your head so much that it's distracting you and you can clear your head palette and come up with a whole new tune. That's one thing. Like, try to sing a song while someone else is singing another song in the background. You can't do it. I don't know how you are able to do that. Yeah, and add, and you you are so absolutely bang on, and add the fact that luck has to happen, and things around you has to happen, too. Um, the story goes that Jolene was actually a 10-year-old girl that 
um, that met Dolly in a meet and greet a number of years earlier. And Dolly loved the name. It was the first time that she heard about it. Um, and she kept singing, you know, to the girl, you know, Jolene, 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 Jolene. And she was just going in her head. Um, with I Will Always Love You, it's actually about Dolly Parton um, leaving her professional partner and mentor, Porter Wagner. Um, Porter Wagner had a kind of variety show in the country music world. Um, and Dolly was a, a featured guest. And Dolly wanted to leave the show so she can go on and do her own thing. And the show was huge. It was well known in the 1960s and early 1970s. Both those things have to happen uncoincidentally for Dolly to sit down and say, I'm going to write one song and clear it off yeah. of her head and then decide to write a song about Porter. And so those things, you know, you and I have talked to, I think to enough about musicians that, um, you know, whenever we joke, they said, yeah, this song, the Bee Gees staying alive was written in 15 minutes. Well, yeah, but it took 25 years of them to work at the art of songwriting in order to get to the point where they're writing a brilliant song in 15 minutes. When you know, you know, but two in one day like that, that's just simply astonishing. Yeah, and the origin stories of these songs are always great. You mentioned the Bee Gees. I heard a story, I don't know, some time ago that the opening like drum, guitar, rhythm riff, I think it's in Jive Talking, came yeah. because they were driving in a car in Florida on a turnpike and the road was bad and they're going, boop, 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 and that became the rhythm that they used to open that song. You know, these things, they yeah, come they from, were who just, knows? Yeah, they were who, just driving around. And who knows and where Mary they come was from. like, she started just kind of talking to the beat of the tires that it would yeah. made. Yeah. Take another turn and go down a smooth road. That song doesn't get written. And maybe that song doesn't, because it's not written, it's not a hit. They're not thought of as hit makers. They're not asked to do Saturday Night Fever. And the whole world becomes different. Uh, it's, it, is, it is amazing. Now, here's the other thing, though. So we look at a day like 50 years ago yesterday and Dolly Parton writing those two songs. Jolene was always going to be a hit, but, you know, it took a long time for me and, you know, I'm not as tapped into the music world as you are, but it took a long time for me to learn that Dolly Parton had actually written I Will Always Love You because my era, that was Whitney Houston. If, if Whitney Houston had not turned that into such a massive song. Nothing would have changed for Dolly Parton, would it? I mean, it, it, except that we wouldn't have been talking about a story like this. We would have just been talking about Jolene. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where... Because um, I don't think people think of Dolly Parton as singing that song. Maybe some as, do. As but. A, right, yeah. And she made a hit on the country world. Um, Linda Ronstadt covered it. Um, she was the first artist to to do a cover of it. Um but you know, there's there's different versions of it. Um, she, you know, Dolly did a version of it in the Best Little Horror House in Texas back in 1982. That movie that um, that starred Burt Reynolds. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a crossover smash whatsoever. Um, but yeah, I don't think that we're we're just talking about then the fact that 50 years ago she wrote Jolene and maybe another minor hit that people have quickly forgot about over mm -hmm. the last 40 years. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is an amazing thing, though. I, I, I hope and I pray and I, I have my fingers crossed that there will come a day when I can do two things, uh, not at that <laughs> level, because I'm never going to write. I'm never going to sell or write a song that's going to sell thirty million, whatever it is. But you know what? Just to just to be able to cut the grass and edge it perfectly—that would be too, or or just to you know that paint the door enough. 
and cut the grass. That would be enough. I, I don't have to have this kind of song, but you know, that, that is a remarkable. When you, when you, you know, when you talk about things like that and you talk about Dolly Parton writing it, don't you feel a little bit like the character in Goodfellas where at the end of it, he's just a regular guy. And he goes out and he picks up the paper yep. and his milk when not even a year ago he was living the high life as a gangster. That's, that is and true. Now, now by he's the way, just a schlub like everybody else. <laughs> by the way, a Rolling Stone magazine, speaking of Dolly Parton, she is the 30th greatest songwriter, according to them. I, I might give her a, a bump up there. They have Bob Dylan as number one. I don't know. Well, something to debate for another day. Eric Alper, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. If you are, I don't know how, but if you are not a fan of the blues, I would suggest you get in your car and point directly down to Memphis, Tennessee and pull up a seat at the Rum Boogie Cafe on Beale Street and you will forever be changed. Or, or I have another option for you, which is going to take less time and is more accessible to most of you. That is Friday at the Bridgeworks in Hamilton. As part of the Smokestack Festival and Concert Series, Steve Strongman will be playing local blues, guitarist, blues singer. That was him you were hearing. Joins us now. Steve, how are you today? I'm doing awesome, Scott. How are you? I Listen, I'm fantastic. It's uh, it's great chatting with you, especially I'm guessing now. I mean, I know we're a little bit past the whole COVID thing now, but I'm guessing you are still, you're, you're sort of a prolific player just to be back on, back on stage, back in wherever. This has got to be great for you. It's fantastic. Uh, it was COVID was tough for everybody. I think it was especially tough for musicians, especially somebody like me that, as you say, and thank you for that. I like to, I like to work. I'm actually in the studio in, uh, in New Jersey as we speak, uh, working on a record with a band right now. Well, t- tell me this, w- one of the things, and when I said, if you don't like the blues, I mean, I, most people, when they hear it, like the blues, but it, it is a, it is a style of music that I'm always fascinated by how someone plays them, gets into them. You've got to have something behind them. I mean, I think anyone, well, not anyone, people who have talent can play pop music or something. Blues seems to have more, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Oomph behind it. How do you, where do you find that? I I think blues, I've said this so many times, it's kind of like the building blocks for everything, really. Like, you know, rock and roll and pop music today, everything is so heavily influenced by the blues. I think that uh, it just kind of speaks to you. Once it gets a hold of you, like for me, I was hooked at about 16 when I snuck into a club and heard Mel Brown playing Kitchener. That, that was it for me. I went, that's it. That's what I want to do. And, you know, I've done a lot of different styles of music, but uh, the blues is definitely home for me. Didn't you win the Mel Brown Award at one time? I did. I won the Mel Brown Blues Award. That is uh, something I'm, I'm very, very proud of because I That's was pretty cool. close with Mel and, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time together. So that was after I first went down to Memphis with my band in, in 2009 to compete in the International Blues Challenge. And then uh, I returned there 10 years later in 2019 and actually won uh, Best Guitar Player in the Solo um, Duo category in Memphis. But that's pretty cool, So I cool, spent though. some time at Rum Boogie. You were talking about yeah, Rum Boogie. Oh, I, I oh. played there and been there. It's a great place. It is. Uh, yeah. There are not too many places that are more... Um, you just get in and you're infused with whatever, whoever's playing. It's just, it's a fan. I don't know, the atmosphere. You wouldn't think that just walls could have an impact, but they do. Somehow the the place where you're playing has an impact. The whole vibe of of Beale Street, uh, if if people haven't been there, they should absolutely go. It's absolutely a wonderful place and uh, it's great. But as you said, they can come down and get some blues on Friday night at Bridgeworks. 
How okay? So as I said, though, and you, you've alluded to it too, there is something I think extra about blues. There's some background to it. I mean, just the name, the blues. Where where does a guy who grew up in this area? Where do you find that? Where do where do, what part of your life are you digging that out of that you find your inspiration or find the blues in? Um, find my inspiration. I draw inspiration from from you know everything around me all the time from experience from family experience from friends experiences and it comes out as uh you know blues based music which is a very wide interpretation is how i see it you know i i don't like it when people sort of label something and say this is blues or this is a little more rock so it's not really blues i hear blues in everything uh, but i found you know inspiration what just through Bands like Led Zeppelin and Cream and Clapton and, and all the classic rock bands that were, we'll say, borrowing heavily from blues inspiration. And, uh, and I realized very quickly that what I loved the most about that style of music was this blues influence that completely shone through in it. The early days, I think, of blues, just the name, there was a, a sadness or a hardship or something that, that led itself to that style of music. You don't believe now that that has to be there, that there can be, you know, someone having an everyday, happy, normal life now that can do it just as well? Absolutely. I, I think that's a little bit of a stereotype in that people okay. said, oh, you know, you've got to go through hardships in order to um, really connect with blues. But blues music can mean everything from from joyous blues to, uh, you know, any st any style, really. I mean, it's, I love, I love a good down and dirty blues, slow blues like anybody else, but it can really have, have any meaning behind it. You, uh, as you said, you are back on the road and putting out an album. You've got uh, Friday, this Friday coming up at the Smokestack Festival at the Bridgeworks, June the 10th. You're at Ancaster Memorial Arts Center for Ancaster Heritage Days, uh, Ottawa, Calgary, uh, I'm not even sure where the the next one is here in August, but uh, I mean, again, this is this is this is your thing. This is is we're talking about blues, but this sounds like it's the Steve Strongman happy side of things. Is is getting out there and just performing? <laughs> yeah, I'm really really happy to to get back at it. I'm uh, you know I've got some exciting projects in the works. I'm currently in a recording studio here with the fabulous Thunderbirds. I'm producing a record oh. with them. Uh, super cool. They're, they're just a fantastic band. I'm thrilled to get an opportunity to work with them. So having opportunities like that while still balancing uh, my own touring schedule and traveling with my own band, uh, it's great. And as you said, hometown shows are, are always just that little bit extra special now, I think, after uh, post-COVID. It's just a little bit extra special to get on stage in front of your friends and family. And uh, I'm really looking forward to Friday at Bridgeworks. Before I let you go, I should ask, since you mentioned the Fabulous Thunderbirds and how cool that is, who's the dream? Who is the absolute dream other player that you just absolutely wish you could get either in studio or on stage with? Uh, I would have to say, if I, there's so many, but if I had to pick only one, I would really love to get on stage with Eric Clapton. Um, somebody once Good asked choice. me that question, and, and I said, B.B. King. And, yeah. uh, and that actually happened. So you never really? know how things are going to turn out if you put it out there into the universe, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you know what? Next time we're going to have to talk about B.B. King. But uh, yeah, Eric Clapton, that's a pretty good choice. You know what? That's a, that's a, that's a pretty decent choice to choose him. So um, you know what? Yeah, finger. now that you've said it, uh, and I know Eric is a regular listener to this program. So now that you've said it, hopefully <laughs> <laughs> that chance will come. Absolutely, uh, man. That would, be, that would be great if we could make it happen. 
Steve Strongman, if you want to see him Friday, this Friday at the Bridgeworks in Hamilton, the Smokestack Festival and Concert Series. Steve, good luck. Thanks for doing this. I can't wait for you to be back this weekend. Thanks for this. Thanks so much for having me on, Scott. I think a lot of people woke up this morning saying, well, it's got to be a public inquiry, doesn't it? With all the stories we've heard over the last couple of months, all the reporting, all the leaks, all the everything, it's got to be a special public inquiry, does it not? Well, at noon today, that said special rapporteur said, nope, no public inquiry. We can have public hearings instead. Well, this um, not making the opposition happy. Jugmeet Singh says he's this isn't good enough. Pierre Polyev says this isn't good enough. Is it good enough? I want to bring in Duff Conacher. He is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, uh, a favorite guest on this show. Duff, how are you today? Well, how are you? Excellent. Thank you. So were you one of those who sat down to listen to the noon press conference, figuring it was a foregone conclusion that there would be a public inquiry? Not necessarily. Um, but David Johnson's reasons are really just bogus. And and when you say he's suggested public hearings instead of in public inquiry, it's even worse. He's suggesting public hearings that he'll do. Not public hearings by a House committee involving opposition party members, but public hearings by him, David Johnston, old friend of Prime Minister Trudeau, who was handpicked by Trudeau to essentially cover this all up. Um, and to give you yeah. a little scoop, we learned today that David Johnston's lawyer that uh, is working for him, uh, Sheila R. Block, I looked her up in the donation database for Elections Canada. And she has only donated to the Liberals in the past, most recently $500 in December 2020, or actually, no, two donations. So $1,000 in 2021 and $442 in 2022. So she, and donations go right back to 2006. So she's a loyal supporter of the Liberal Party. And, and that's, that's David Johnson's lawyer. And he's an old friend of Trudeau. And they're supposedly judging Trudeau's actions. I mean, it's just a Duff, layer cake of conflicts of interest. Take a second, because I think today when people heard, assuming they were listening, and if they weren't, that's okay, we'll catch you up here over the next few hours. Uh, public inquiry versus public hearings. You've expressed what part of it would be that David Johnson would be overseeing the public hearings. Otherwise, what is the difference between the two things? Public inquiry uh, the position has all the powers of a court to subpoena witnesses, uh, subpoena evidence, and get that evidence from uh, the government, even if it is uh, covered by secrecy laws. Look at it behind closed doors and report on it without revealing those secrets. And uh, David Johnston and, and the Inquiry Commissioner, hopefully, and the Bloc Québécois is pushed to this most, would be chosen by all the ruling all the federal party leaders, not just by the ruling party leader, and uh, would hold hearings and hear from witnesses and people could apply. David Johnson doing public hearings is this guy handpicked by Trudeau, who's Trudeau's old friend, choosing who he wants to hear from with no powers to uh, subpoena any documents or evidence. And... Uh, no credibility, really. He's an old friend. You can't judge your friend's actions. And the, it's quite incredible that David Johnston, who wrote a book called Trust, does not seem to understand that 
no, he has no credibility reviewing his old family friend Trudeau's actions. And I, I saw lawyer be only a liberal donor just adds another layer to the layer cake of conflict of interest after conflict of interest that is undermining the investigation of this, uh, what's happened with foreign interference and how the government's responded. I saw a tweet today from someone that said, uh, quoting that old statement that says, it takes you a, a lifetime to build your reputation and a moment to tear it down. I'm not sure his reputation has been torn down, but I will say, I think his reputation has been torn down among those who don't believe in the Liberal Party. I think liberals probably find him to be still very credible and very upright. I just think that there's an awful lot of other people in the country who probably, and this may be an overstatement and may be unfair, but are now going to hear the name David Johnson and think lackey to the public, to the to the liberals. And that, well, that may or may not be fair, but I don't think he's going to escape that. Even worse today, he said, oh, my, my interactions with Trudeau ended when he was young. Uh, when he graduated from McGill University. And I haven't had friendly interactions with him since. But he gave an interview to Bob Fife uh, on CTV's program that Bob Fife hosted at the time back in 2016, saying that the Trudeau family are family friends with his. And, and Well, there are Trudeau's photos. Fam- Trudeau's family was living in the Governor General's uh, a cottage on the Governor General's residence grounds back then. And Trudeau said in 2017, David Johnson's a friend of mine. I mean, so he didn't even, it was incredible for him to fail to mention that, no, actually your interactions continued with Trudeau right through officially uh, the end of October 2017, because you were governor general for the first two years that Trudeau was prime minister. Duff, I got to jump in. Duff, I got to jump in just because I only have 30 seconds and I really want to ask you one other thing about this. And so I apologize for, for interrupting you there, but... He talked about transparency issues today and that if a public inquiry, it wouldn't be transparent because a lot of this stuff would be secret. Is there any different thing if it's a public hearing versus a public inquiry? We're still not going to hear any of that stuff, presumably, right? No. and he, Well, he actually says, I'm not even going to look at it anymore. I've already looked at everything that's secret. And you just have to trust me as Trudeau's old friend that I didn't see anything that Trudeau did wrong. I mean, it's incredible. That he thinks he can get away with this, and the Trudeau thinks he can get away with this. Mm. In this time, people recognize that this smells really badly to have a friend judging the prime minister who's been handpicked by the prime minister. That is uh, Duff Conacher. We always love having Duff on here. A great commentary. Co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Take care. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Very interesting decision today by David Johnson, the special rapporteur, to say no public inquiry needed in the China situation in this country. Hmm. Henry Jacek is a professor of political science at McMaster University. He joins us now. Thank you so much for the time today. Okay, my pleasure. So, um, what did you think of this when you heard the answer today was going to be no public inquiry? Was that what you had thought was coming? I, I thought it was coming, uh, so I was a bit bit surprised by that. Uh, although I was interested in the rationale that he had for making it, uh, and uh, I, you know, it, it's hard to fault him in the sense that. He's, he's very well known for, for the type of organizations that he's led to universities. He's been the president of them. He's done, all, you know, of course, our, our senior member uh, in Ottawa for, you know, uh, for, for the executive branch. So he, you know, and 
he's done a lot of things, and he's done them extremely well, and he's done stuff on the media as well. I mean, he's had media shows about explaining Canada to the United States. So he's he's done a lot of things, and I think he's you know he he was a good person to put in charge of this. Um, so um, you know I, I think it was somewhat courageous for him because he knew he's going to get an onslaught of criticism, particularly from the conservatives, uh, and as well as the NDP, which you know. But uh, so he he went ahead and did that, and uh, so I you know I'll 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 sort of judge you know as we go along what's going to happen. I will say the. My biggest concern is the uh, is the fact is how it doesn't matter whether it's an inquiry to me or um, uh, hearings is is there going to be a research staff to dig up the information as to what the type of uh, interference there might have been and ha- and ma- and make it concrete so people could understand if there has mm-hmm. been you know concrete interference in the last two elections. That needs to be put before the Canadian people, and only a research staff can help the the people who are conducting the uh, the hearings or the inquiry would uh, you know would would make it useful. There there are a lot of political parts of this that I want to get into. We have limited time. Um, mm-hmm. Just before I get to the liberals on this, Jugmeet Singh was very critical of the decision today. The leader of the NDP, mm-hmm. he is in a unique position though because his government, his not his government, his party is essentially propping up the Liberal Party. And we've seen time and time and time again now, Jagmeet Singh say, oh, I don't support, I don't agree with whatever the government is doing. At what point does he have to stand there and say, look, this is this is one step too far. I don't agree. I think there's Chinese interference, whatever. At what point does Jagmeet Singh have to fish or cut bait here? Well, I think, I think his strategy uh, is that uh, you know he can't, uh, get, you know, join with the conservatives or or the other parties to defeat the government because he probably figures he doesn't have the money in the organization right now to conduct an uh, an election. So I'm sure that is top of mind for him. However, his strategy is very damn well. His argument is if it were to come come uh, come about that we would have uh, an in, uh, an inquiry. That that certainly would be dangerous for the liberals because it would probably drag on for a couple of years and get us very close to the next election. And of course, what what the hearings will probably be something that'll be you know be over uh, much faster than than an inquiry. So uh, you know he's he's making a case for something that is very that if was put into action would be very dangerous for the uh, liberal party. What about the Liberal Party? Because I, I do wonder, um, with this decision today, with the ongoing discussion of David Johnson's relationship with the with the Trudeau family, if some of those people who were undecided or independent or not really sure where they're going, if they start to look at this and say, it does kind of look like something is being covered up here, and I don't know that I trust the government. Mm-hmm. Well, I think somebody has to explain that. Basically... Uh, you know, a, a government uh, can basically, you know, a prime minister or a president or, or what have you, can really only focus on about three or four things at most. And it and, and it's not uncommon for either our government or the American government or other democratic governments where the information that is gathered by intelligence, uh, uh, you know, agencies on what is happening outside their country that that information doesn't normally get connected 
with the people who need to know about it inside the country, like the, the, the domestic uh, units that are in charge of, uh, you know, uh, you know, making sure that the inter- interference of various kinds doesn't happen. And so this this is quite common, and it's quite, um, you know, there's a long history in many countries of this happening, uh, and uh, so that that doesn't really surprise me. Uh, so uh, you know, it's it, it's difficult to do to get these people. You know the people who are mainly oriented to what's happening outside of the country in terms of, say, Canada's uh, pr- pr- uh, having a protection uh, against interference, and those people who have to do it inside the country. So that that is that is a, that is a big problem that needs to be talked about because it's perennial in in I think all the democracies. That is Henry Jacek, professor of political science at McMaster University. We always love when you take some time to join us. Thank you so much for the time today. Okay, my pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It's been a traffic day with problems on the link, a bad accident, and then all the spill off and roads around the link really not moving well. Uh, It's been interesting. If you're on the mountain, if you're especially on the East Mountain, you know what I'm talking about. Well, while we're talking about traffic, let's bring that down to the lower city, to Main Street, because the city is well along the way of discussing plans to change Main Street into a two-way street and to redesign the entire road, not just to throw a yellow line in the middle, which makes it two ways, but to rethink the entire way the street is built. I want to bring in Mike Field. He is the Director of Transportation Operations and Maintenance with the City of Hamilton. Uh, Mike, thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. So walk us through, because I think when people hear, oh, you're going to turn this into a two-way street, as I say, the idea is, okay, we're going to paint a yellow line in the middle and maybe make some traffic lights face the other direction. There's more to what you're planning than that. That's right. Yeah. Back uh, last May, or I guess May 20, May 2022, sorry, uh, council directed us to convert Main Street to from, from one way to two way. And part of that is to integrate complete streets uh, climate resiliency and ultimately make the corridor safer for all road users with an emphasis on transit riders, pedestrians, and motorists and cyclists. Um, so in order for us to achieve that, we've got to make some changes to the look and feel of Main Street to make, say, more space for, for pedestrians and, uh, and cyclists within the corridor. So as you point out, it's not just, uh, it's not just putting paint down and, uh, and some signs and that's it. It's a bit more than that. There is a website through the city's website, uh, Main Street Two-Way Conversion Study. People can find it if they uh, go look online. Uh, Help me out here because on that website, as I'm looking at this, there are three different design drawings. And I'm not clear. And again, people should go and look, look at these because it'll give them a much better view. Are we talking about three different parts of Main Street would be for each of these? Or are we looking at... It could be all the way along what you see in design drawing one or all the way along in design drawing two or all the way in three, because the three are different looking things. Yeah, good good question. The website you're referencing is engage.hamilton.ca. So on there, we have three drawings. Those drawings kind of, uh, kind of stitch together and represent uh, Main Street in between Dundurn all the way to, uh, to Main and King, the Delta. Uh, so you can fit those together. It shows you the entire corridor of what, of what we're kind of envisioning um, from end to end. So they're not three different scenarios. They're just three drawings that represent the entire corridor because it's so long. We had to split them up. 
Right. Okay. Because what I was wondering was, okay, and you're absolutely right. Of course, one is for a certain stretch. I just didn't know if, you know, if, if we look at one of them, which has, it seems like bike lanes on both sides of the road, one of them doesn't, if we're talking about this could be grabbed and then put the whole way, or if we're actually talking about three different looking parts of the city. Yeah, that that's, yeah, it, it essentially has three different looks. Uh, starting in the west end towards the 403, we have a lot of traffic that is generated from uh, the two exits off of the 403. So there's a lot of eastbound traffic that that is used to using Main Street. Uh, and then as they kind of travel down Main Street, they disperse and then the amount of volume kind of reduces itself. So we need to attend to kind of the the usage of Main Street. And, and uh, you know, at that end, we need to have a bit more capacity for vehicles. And then as we move along, uh, we, we don't need as much capacity for volumes and we can introduce other things so there's a segment where we're introducing bike lanes um and then finally out towards uh, gauge park those bike lanes kind of disappear and then we have some on-street parking traffic calming features uh through that part of the corridor so it's kind of um adjusting to the the use of main street but also because of the real estate that we have along main street too we do have an older city, obviously a lot of properties back right onto the to the rear of the sidewalks. So there's not a lot of room to uh, to use when we want to re-envision uh, Main Street. My understanding then looking at these drawings right now, I believe that there are five lanes on Main Street. Uh, it would go down to in some cases four, in some cases three lanes. That is that that's significantly reducing the number of lanes for the amount of traffic that is going to slow things down. It is going to slow things down for sure. Uh, in some segments, generally we're talking about um, three or two or three eastbound lanes, and then one westbound lane on Main Street. Um, however, we've done a bunch of modeling uh, to look at traffic volumes and and how pe- people move about. Uh, part of Main Street is uh, to provide a, a relief valve for LRT once it's under construction. Uh, there's going to be less opportunity for westbound uh, movements on King Street, so we're going to introduce westbound on uh, on Main Street <clears throat> as part of that to help out with uh, moving vehicles through the corridor. But it is a reduction. Uh, that's by design. We want to slow people down. We want to, to re-envision Main Street as something that's not a highway cutting through the city, but having it as a more traditional Main Street that you would see in, in other cities. Uh, Main Street and King Street kind of exist uh, in a different way than in a lot of other municipalities in, in that there are a highway that you can drive from one end of the city to the other very quickly. And, and along with that brought uh, you know a number of safety uh, issues uh, and and uh, kind of brought us here today with the motion that we got from council and the work that we've been doing. Now I couldn't help today because I was I was one of those people who was stuck on the East Mountain with the link issue, and it came to mind because I, I I couldn't help but think that when you reduce the lanes on Main Street and then you put the LRT on King, which is going to significantly reduce the lanes. I couldn't help but think that this might be the way that traffic looks downtown all the time now, that what we're going to create is not just slowing down, but creating almost a traffic jam intentionally all the time. Is that unfair or is that what we will see? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would frame it as, as a traffic jam necessarily. It would definitely be a busier and slower corridor than what we're used to to today. The green wave that everyone's kind of used to of driving from one end to the other isn't going to exist in the future under that new configuration. Um, So if you look at it from from kind of what you experience today as a driver to what it may look like in the future, it's going to be different. It's going to be slower. It's going to seem seem to be more congested for for sure. But I wouldn't wouldn't define it as pure grid-like 
gridlock like we're seeing with the closure of the link. The link obviously carries a far uh, greater amount of, of traffic volume than Main Street and King Street does. Um, so it won't be, it won't be quite uh, gridlocked to that extent. But unless, you know, and again, not to be the negative person here, but unless you have a fender bender or something happens, then it could. I mean, if you reduce it by that much, this could, there could be commonplace, common days, or it could be commonplace when this road is very, very, very slow, correct? It, it could be. I mean, any any uh, any roadway when it's uh, uh, constrained by a collision or something like that um, does does wreak havoc on traffic flow. So uh, I don't disagree that that could be a possible scenario on Main Street. It is uh, that is Mike Field. He is the director of transportation operations and maintenance with the City of Hamilton. Mike, I appreciate the explanation. Thank you for this. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Tim Powers, Chairman of Summer Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, here to talk a little David Johnston et al. Tim, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. Nobody apparently, at least in government, wants a public inquiry, and David Johnson says... We don't need to have one because it's not warranted. I'll do a little, I'll do some public hearings instead. Mm-hmm. How is this going to play? Uh, well, it, it was really interesting. I watched this whole news conference. And I haven't done that in a long time um, because obviously it's a very newsy item. So he, he started off saying he thought he was going down that path, that he was going to call a public inquiry or recommend that one be called. Ultimately, that's the prime minister's decision. But he went down uh, another path, and that other path is public hearing. How is it playing? Um, so far, I mean, predictably, uh, you're getting responses from the opposition saying that's not right. You know, Prime Minister, you need to call this anyway. Pierre Polyev uh, has gone uh, as far to say as he did last week. Are you surprised by this? Uh, David Johnson is the Prime Minister's friend, and this was all a fake job to use Polyev's language from the beginning. Um, it, it's, it's all very fascinating to me, Scott. Here's why. I think in another time, in another place, in a galaxy far, far away, maybe 20 years ago, um, what David Johnson recommended could be a really useful solution. However, the problem David Johnson had and didn't get at was this was more than a policy issue. This was a political quagmire, this being the how, how uh, the government should respond to the allegations of electoral interference. And I think um, he, you know, he didn't get that political dimension to it. And that uh, is probably going to diminish what I think, from what I've heard, are some useful and helpful recommendations that shouldn't be forgotten about at this juncture. I just am shocked, and maybe I shouldn't be, um, but I'm just shocked that the Prime Minister basically stepped on a landmine of his own making here, because once you had made David Johnston the guy who was going to be doing this, with his connection to the Trudeau Foundation, with his connection to the family, he said he's a family friend, if he comes out and says there's a public inquiry, well, okay, but if he doesn't, you've essentially told all the people who think there should be that something fishy is going on. It just, it, it seems like it was, it, it was a self made bullet hole in yourself almost that you knew this was going to blow up and go 
for those who are not liberal supporters, everybody now is saying, ah, the fix is in. You might have been able to avoid that if you didn't pick someone so closely or seemingly closely aligned. Yeah, and that's my point about the politics of this. Um, it isn't about thoughtful policy, unfortunately. And as I say, you know, let's not forget what David Johnson said in there, which was a big news item, I think, that we basically need a systemic overhaul of the way we share intelligence and the way it, it is used within government. But I, I, I think also the opposition to the government did a very good job of making this about should or shouldn't there be an inquiry. So if there wasn't an inquiry, it's being viewed as a failure. Now, you know, the prime minister didn't look heartbroken over this today <laughs> because maybe he feels that this is, uh, that he'll, he'll escape this story. I don't know if that's the case. I can't imagine those in the security establishment, Scott, who've already been sharing information because they're dissatisfied with the government and dissatisfied with the way they handle security issues are suddenly going to stop now. Um, so this, this will continue. The thing that's fascinating also for me with all of this is, look, yeah, big news item. You and I are talking about it. I've talked about it extensively with uh, the, uh, the Scott the Lesser, that Scott Thompson guy. And, um, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm not hearing about this that much in the realm of public concerns. And that might be what saves the government from a real political punishment here as we move forward. Yeah, and you could absolutely be right. I mean, heaven knows, uh, the Prime Minister has been Teflon to this point. There, He's had things happen and done things that would have brought down many, many, many others. Um, that said, I do wonder if, and I said this uh, an hour or so ago to another guest, I do wonder if in this particular case, if the people who are independent or haven't really decided or are sort of sitting on the fence about everything get the sense, oh, it, it kind of sounds like we're covering something up or we're hiding something here. Maybe maybe that never happens. Maybe this prime minister is just so water off a duck's back that it nothing ever sticks to him. But I do wonder what the point is when people start to say, oh, wait, what's going on here? Yeah, valid. Uh, except with our work in Abacus, you know, we've seen that people have paid attention to this story. But what they are voting on isn't this. Maybe, again, as you say, that could potentially change. But people are the issues that concern people will not surprise you, will not surprise the audience. The top ones tend to be health care and yeah. affordability. This yeah. story, as fascinating as it is, as important as it is, is not at the, the top there. Again, that doesn't excuse what the, the, the government has done or failed to do more particularly and other governments have failed to do. The other challenge here, I'd say this, though, Scott, is um, for those undecided voters you're talking about or voters that are kind of, you know, this issue matters and security matters is Pierre Pauly has got to strike a bit of a balance here. I think he's been a bit too gratuitously nasty in some of his personal critiques of David Johnson and made the story more about David Johnson, which actually helps the liberals than liberal incompetence and failure. So for those people who aren't happy with the liberals, who maybe voted liberal in the past and want serious leadership, there's a challenge there that Pierre Polyev's got to address, though it didn't seem to be evident today. He seems to be giving voice. I imagine his thinking is there are lots of Canadians who are angry about this, so I'm going to use the raw language that I normally do uh, to uh, talk about this issue. 
It's a fascinating topic, whether or not it has that kind of lingering, lasting impact, or if even people really, really care, or if it's just a fascination, I guess uh, Abacus and others will tell us in the next few days when some polling is done to see if this has any impact. Uh, Tim Powers, always love having you on here. Thanks for taking time. And the black old rum doesn't have a hold of me yet, Scott. They're always fun. <laughs> Take care, buddy. Bye. It's five o'clock somewhere, Tim. Okay, okay, Blue Jays. Mmm. We've been talking about a lot of interesting stuff today. A lot of it with, you know, questions about where things are going. Traffic, public inquiry. Other stuff like that. The Blue Jays, I got to tell you, there are questions right now on this particular day, last place in the American League East. Now, there is a an asterisk that goes with that because last place in the American League East would be second place in the AL Central. And it would be second or third, I guess third in two or three other divisions. The AL East is a bear right now. Nonetheless, I don't think as we're getting closer to June, I don't think too many of us expected to see Toronto bringing up the rear. Mike Wilner is a writer for the Toronto Star, baseball writer, and also the host of the Deep Left Field podcast and a very familiar voice to Blue Jays fans joins us now. Michael, how are you today? All right, thanks. How are you? I am okay. So let me throw that one at you. Would you have said that as we come close to June that you would have expected Toronto to be sitting in last place in the AL East? No, not at all. But I, I do like the caveat you put on that. Last place in the AL East is not like last place in any other division. And in fact, no. like a week ago, the last place team in the AL East would have been the first place team in the AL Central. So um, mm. it it is, um, you can't really think of them as a last place team. It's just uh, a matter of their current circumstance, given the division. But uh, I did expect this season that the Blue Jays would have a pretty easy time playoff wise that, you know, last year they spent every day of the season in a playoff spot. I expected the same this year and I expected them to challenge for the division, which I still think they'll do, but um, I certainly would not have expected them to spend any time in last or even in fourth place in the division. I think one of the, if there is a concern, and I, look, I, I do agree with you that I don't expect this to be where they finish. I think they'll be contending. If there is a concern, though, uh, you may or may not share this. You have to be able to beat the teams in your division if you're going to knock them off and pass and pass them. Right now, they are 5-13 and 13 against the AL East. That's not the sign of a team that's doing what it needs to do. No, I mean, they clearly have not been doing what they need to do. And a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, this last week when they went one and six against the Yankees and the Orioles and they got swept four straight at Fenway not uh, long ago. So that really has, has killed them in the division. But, you know, when you if you step back, you look at who's the best team in the division, Tampa Bay, the Jays are two and two against them. They're three and four against the Yankees. So it really has been. Baltimore and Boston, who they haven't beat yet in seven tries, um, who have been giving them the hardest time. And Baltimore caught them at the right time. Uh, they were having a, a horrible week. They continue to, and two of those games went to extra innings. Um, it's, it's certainly not as dire as it looks, but it's definitely not pretty at the moment. No, and and while you are 100% right with the idea that you know they would be a pretty good team in any other division, um, 
they're now nine and a half games back. And again, I know that there's still lots of time left, uh, but you're putting yourself, you're putting a big challenge in front of yourself to dig out of this the longer this thing goes on for that you are in the American League East and those teams you presume once they start to rack up wins against teams that aren't in the division, um, it, they're they're putting themselves in a pickle here. Well, the, but those teams have been racking up wins against teams that aren't in the division to a much larger extent, and they've had the opportunity than the Blue Jays have. I mean, look at that Tampa Bay Rays 13-game win streak to start the season. Uh, three of the four teams they faced over those 13 games were horrible and are all going to lose at least 100 games this year. The Jays have only played one of those teams uh, in Detroit. And when the schedule opens up in the middle of June, uh, they'll get the Miamis and the San Francisco's and the Cincinnati's of the world. So really, they, the Jays have had a much more difficult schedule than the teams ahead of them so far. And that'll all even out now that everybody plays everybody all the time. So um, we will see if they can do some catch-up work then. But they certainly have stubbed their toes pretty hard uh, against the teams in their own division. And it's it's a shame, but again, it's, you know, baseball is a sport where you can't really ride that day to day or even week to week roller coaster. I mean, nobody remembers Does anybody remember last May in the middle of uh, May, the Jays had a, a road trip. I think it was New York, Cleveland and Tampa, and they went two and eight and they scored three runs or fewer in all, but three of those games. And, um, you know, they weren't in last place because Baltimore was terrible and Boston wasn't very good, but they were only one game over 500. Right now, they're two games over 500. Nobody remembers that last year. And I mean, I think some people will remember this, but maybe not. You know, maybe not. Well, Mike, I don't remember what I had for want. breakfast. I don't remember what I had for breakfast, let alone last year's road trip. But, but okay, so what is the part then right now? that has surprised you what what is the what is the the current and again this could resolve itself what's the current shortcoming on this blue jays team or the the flaw they've got right now that has surprised you oh right now the huge flaw is an inability to hit with runners and scoring it's just been abysmal and there's it's part of what makes it so frustrating to watch is because they continue to have opportunities to score where it looks like okay you get a big hit here you know, blow this thing wide open and it'll be an easy win. And they didn't do a double play. You know, it's, it's been horrible on the, the uh, last seven. I don't know what they did yesterday with runners in scoring position, but it wasn't pretty either. But in the six games prior to that, they were six for 66 with a runner at second or third or both six for 66, uh, which is just horrifying. And it included a game they won where they went one for 17 with runners in scoring position. Um, so that's, that's the huge failure now. I mean, it's not the bullpen. Uh, it's not the starting pitching. It's the, they've started to uh, have some flaws on defense and have some, make some really basic base running mistakes. But I think that's because everyone's trying so hard to make something happen because nothing's happening in the batter's box. It is, uh, it is time for sure. It is, it is absolutely time for the Jays to get things going. And, uh, of course, right when we say that they're in Tampa Bay, which is, 
I, I don't know that there's, I don't know there's a place that gives Jays fans greater nightmares than that dungeon in Tampa Bay. But nonetheless, here we are, and there they are. Uh, Mike Wilner, you can read him in the Star. You can listen to him at the Deep uh, Deep Left Field. That's the name of the podcast. You can find that everywhere. Mike, we always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Folks, have a wonderful evening. I'll be back in for Scott one more day tomorrow. Thanks for Tom, thanks to Tom for keeping us on the air and Will for lining everything up. See ya. 